The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The American people made it clear. They don't want every day going forward to be a constant political battle. We're going to be an administration that will work with everyone. Well, just because we didn't get across the finish line, that does not mean it's over. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. I'd rather be in our position than Representative Bobart's position. But again, we're winning, but that doesn't mean we won. I don't ask people for money because I've won all the races that I've been in over my life, except one, um, the big one. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Control of the U.S. Senate becomes a best of three. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as the vote counting continues in some key races that will decide majorities on Capitol Hill. We're not there yet. Still no call on the House. And the Senate is indeed coming down to just three states that are still undecided. We'll have the latest from Jessica Taylor, the Cook Political Report, and analysis from our signature panel with Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Later, independents and young people challenge voting models around the country. We talk turnout coming up with Mindy Romero, director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at USC. Here we are two days later, and we still do not know which party controls the House or the Senate. Though few seem at this point to doubt that Republicans will eventually take the House, kind of a matter of time here. The GOP is only about a dozen seats away, uh, maybe a bit less with the number of seats out west that have yet to be called. They include the Boebert seat, Colorado's third district. Lauren Boebert is now leading her challenger. I don't know if you've been following this. Of course, she just tweeted, winning has been leading uh, by what? We're both just not even 400 points Adam Frisch is the Democrat in this case. He was up by about 60 points when I woke up this morning. Now Lauren Boebert is in the lead, and she was out speaking today at a roundtable in which she was assailing health officials responsible for the nation's response to COVID. And while she was at it with the idea of being accused or, I guess, tired of being accused of an election denier, she had deniers of her own. Any member of Congress... From the upcoming freshman class to those in leadership who won't fight with me to end medical tyranny, secure the southern border, expel Anthony Fauci, they will not have my support. Not in their reelection uh-huh. and certainly not for speaker. That was ooh. That was at CPAC back in August invoking a whole other story that we're going to talk about a bit later on with our panel because we keep hearing the knives are out for Kevin McCarthy, but they haven't even called the House yet. Uh, On the Senate side, it's down to three as we keep talking here. You know, Georgia, we know, is going to a runoff. That one's going to take a month, as Senator Raphael Warnock reminded supporters today. So I'm going to need you to stick with me for four more weeks. Can we do that? Four more weeks. The 6th of December uh, will, of course, be tracking that for you. But we don't know if it's going to be the race that decides control. We're waiting on Arizona and Nevada as well. 
Mark Kelly's holding ahead in Arizona. We're not sure exactly where things are going in Nevada. Even with Adam Laxalt leading, it appears that the incumbent Democratic senator, Catherine Cortez Masto, may have the votes in waiting with mail-ins that have yet to be counted from Reno, from Las Vegas, that could lean Democratic. So that's where we start the conversation with Jessica Taylor, Senate and Governor's Editor of the Cook Political Report. Jessica, welcome. I hope you have had a chance to get some sleep here uh, over the last couple of days because it's not done yet. Uh, do we know when these races could be called Arizona, Nevada? Are we waiting into the weekend or what? I think we're waiting into the weekend, perhaps even early next week. Um, we should get some more ballots tonight in both of those states. But again, um, as of the last time I checked this afternoon, it was still unclear exactly how many full count of how many ballots um, in both of those states. But I think that things are moving, either are in the right direction or moving in the right direction for Democrats in both of those states. Um, you mentioned in uh, Nevada, Catherine Cortez Master, who was long thought to be the most vulnerable Democratic incumbent. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, been talking a lot these past few days. Um, uh, she is, is narrowly behind her Republican challenger at this point, Adam Laxalt. However, again, where those outstanding ballots are and the fact that they are mail-in ballots that typically lean more Democratic, um, that is good news for her. She is currently winning those at a clip of about six. She's winning about 65 percent of those. Mm-hmm. Um, Nevada politics guru uh, John Ralston, who we all follow there, yeah. um, and he, he said he, he's calculated that she only actually needs to win 55. So even if her margins go down, if some of the more rural counties that are going to be more laxalt friendly come in, mm-hmm. uh, that means that she's still in good shape. Um, In Arizona, Mark Kelly is up by about five points, but actually it seems to be a mix of votes in there, some in person, some day of, and particularly some that people delivered, hand-delivered to polling places, um, which can often trend more Republican. So we expect that lead to drop, but I think he's ahead far enough where Democrats are still favored in both. And that's important because that means that the runoff in Georgia would not be for control of the Senate. And... You know, again, Democrats might actually pick up one seat in the Senate, which would be something when we look at history. Boy, incredible. So we'll learn in the next few days, you like to think, maybe through this weekend, as, as we said in the outset, whether Georgia is really going to matter. If, if if it's not the decisive vote, then it becomes gravy potentially for Democrats if they can add another seat here. Uh, but my goodness, I, I just that race could get into Looney Tunes over the next month. Uh, and, and it's just a question of how much pressure there's going to be on these candidates to get this done. As far as the House is concerned, uh, you know, we're watching Lauren Boebert's seat because she's uh, she's famous or infamous, depending on who you're asking. But what are the seats to watch at this point? Where is this going to be decided? In California? I think a lot of it's coming in California. Some in the West Coast, Washington, Oregon. My colleague Dave Wasserman covers those. And I think in California, we don't particularly know exactly what is outstanding still. And that can take weeks to count. Yeah. Um, truly, a lot of mail there as well. And remember, a lot of these ballots, as long as they're postmarked by election day, they can still be counted mm-hmm. and could come in days after. And that includes a lot of military ballots as well, of course, from overseas. So while the whole argument takes place around, you know, the leadership, uh, the big battle of who's going to hold the gavel, it, it's going to be quite a while before we actually can can call this. Uh, most likely for Republicans. I mean, Kevin McCarthy was out there on election night taking credit here. At what point does, you know, does this start to age poorly? Well, um, I, I think that just where it is, again, Republicans only needed five House seats to flip this. Yeah. And it looks like that will the game would be um, higher than that, but only barely. 
And the fact, you know, McCarthy was talking last year that the Republicans could flip as many as 60 House seats with the number of competitive ones that have been shrunk. Um, that's not necessarily the truth. It wasn't accurate then. But also where that margin may end up coming into play is in uh, redistricting. The couple of seats that Republic, uh, Republicans were able to draw in their favor and pick up either in newly drawn seats or in seats that were, you know, the party, um, party power changed to who did best in which districts and things, too. So they had an edge in there. It didn't look like, of course, they were going to need that necessarily. You could just pad their totals. But right now it could be decisive. Again, I think this is going to be close and far below what Republicans were aiming for. Jessica, looking at the governor's race, uh, as you are the governor's editor for Cook uh, in Arizona, Katie Hobbs is is still ahead by just about a point or one percentage point, if if we can call it that. I'm rounding a little bit here. Uh, but Carrie Lake is talking a big game still, uh, calling out the, uh, the the voting infrastructure in Arizona, voting officials and so forth. That's a race. You know, we talk about the Senate race for the balance of power in Washington, but that's a race yeah. we've got to be watching closely as well. Will those be called around the same um, time? I, I expect so, since we're looking at the same ballots. But yeah. um, you're right. I mean, for her, though, she is running ahead of Lake Masters, which is not that surprising. So I think this is a state where we could see a split decision. Um, so, and again, remember, people complain about the time it takes to count ballots. This is nothing new, especially mm-hmm. in Arizona. And I think you could kind of, if you want to count them fast, then you could have more errors. So it's like, do you want them fast or do you want them counted right. accurately? And it really could be interesting to watch her because I think of any of the people um, – she is certainly going to claim fraud if she wins. Is she still going to claim that if she wins and if Lake Masters loses is a question I'm currently pondering. <laughs> However, I will say that some of these, you know, election deniers that Trump had backed, um, particularly in Michigan, Wisconsin, um, different places. I-, I was pleased on election. I didn't see some of those after those races became clear. They did concede and concede gracefully. Um, so we're seeing less of that. But, um, you know, which, again, is a sad thing that we have to actually uh, remind us that should not be out of the ordinary. Um, but I think certainly Arizona is a place where uh, she is making noise and is a very loud voice there. Well, it's great to have you back with us, Jessica. Rest up, rest the voice, if anything. <laughs> Jessica Taylor from Cook Political Report getting us started off uh, here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. I want to talk to the panel quickly on this because they've been watching this as closely and have been as deep into this as anyone over the past couple of days. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Rick, you've, of course, had an eye on Arizona, and and you're the expert on Arizona politics. Could we get a call tonight after the next dump of votes? Probably not. Um, you'll get another couple hundred, maybe 150,000, 175,000 tonight. You've still got like 400,000 outstanding. It's still mm. going to be close. Uh, but the more goes out, we're learning a lot. And one of the things we're learning is that these uh, same-day absentee ballot uh, uh, drop-offs uh, uh, as of last night, and that's a pretty good sample, over 150,000, I mean, they, they were much less Republican than they were in 2020. I mean, you know, we have a lot to compare it to because they do this every year. Mm-hmm. And uh, and everyone was surprised that uh, both uh, Katie Hobbs and Mark Kelly actually picked up votes. They they should have been losing votes along the way. So wow. um, this has got a lot of head scratching going on in Arizona, but uh, uh, tonight will tell us even more. Jeannie, is Lauren Boebert going to keep her job? 
you know, sh she thinks she is. I, I think it is still a big question, but but let's not, uh, you know, under let's underscore rather the fact that for to knock off an incumbent in the House is a big effing deal, as Biden would say. <laughs> so if Adam Frisch does this, it is a huge, huge upset on his part, and wow. he is well within striking distance. And we're just getting started on the fastest hour in politics. Rick and Jeannie will stay right where they are as we continue the conversation about the battle for leadership here in Washington. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The backroom drama in the U.S. House is fun to watch. But you wonder how it ends as they report knives out for Kevin McCarthy, although... Maybe he's whistling past the graveyard, but Steve Scalise, of course, this is the man who would be either majority leader or maybe even speaker. He'd be the man to challenge Kevin McCarthy if he's coming off of the midterm showing weakness. He told Fox News today, no, he's on board. Look, we're going to have our elections next week. I'm supporting Kevin McCarthy for speaker, and he'll win that race. And ultimately, you've seen us pull together these last few months and focus on the attack against big government socialism. We'll reassemble the panel with the talking points in place. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here. Uh, Rick, at what point, you have to say that publicly, right? At what point does this get ugly? Uh, it's probably getting ugly already. Um, I think that, you know, these members are a club. Uh, it's a very exclusive club. They talk to each other more than they talk to anybody else. Yeah. Uh, and my guess is the various factions within um, the the House Republican caucus, you know, whether they're the far right or the moderates uh, and Kevin McCarthy kind of smack dab in between and his leadership team mm -hmm. uh, are all scrambling to try and figure out how to make heads or tails of this. And, and of course, some of these people who have yet to be even determined, are they going to be members of Congress in a Republican or Democrat caucus are going to make a big difference. And, yeah, right. uh, and, and so the fact that they still don't know uh, really does limit it a bit, but there is already a lot of haggling going on as to how to <laughs> peel together enough votes to, to win the speakership. It's pretty fascinating stuff here, Jeannie. And, you know, this is real inside politics, but it's going to it's going to really matter, obviously, when it comes down to who is holding the gavel. This would not be the first time if, if he doesn't make it that Kevin McCarthy fails in his quest to be leader. Should we be talking about other names here? Is Elise Stefanik on board or is she allied with him? Who's who should we be looking at other than Steve Scalise? You know, I think Elise Stefanik would be a fascinating choice, and not just because I'm from New York, and she has proven that she will do what it takes to move ahead if she can. I think that Kevin McCarthy is still in the running. I think he should go take lessons from Nancy Pelosi if she would be willing to help him, because he's going to find himself in a, if he is speaker again, he's going to find himself in a very similar situation 
situation. He's going to be trapped between a far right as opposed to far left, you know, sort of small group of, say, 20, 30 members, plus or minus, and then much larger group of moderates. And he's going to be squeezed between those. And one person in the modern era who's shown that she can actually maneuver through that is Nancy Pelosi. And this seems to be where we are headed, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, with the speakers and the leadership having to try to work through a far right or left of their caucus and the moderates. And she was able to do that with people like AOC and the squad. She did it successfully. He should take lessons from her. Yeah. If, if this became a Scalise uh, a speakership, Rick, would would Elise Stefanik be the, the shoe in for majority leader? Uh, yeah, not necessarily. I mean, no. uh, if uh, Scalise winds up getting the catbird seat, you know, for and, and you'll have to assume that there's been a decapitation move on on, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy to do that. He's probably going to look at this and say, "Okay, I want to be surrounded by my people, not Got Kevin's it. people." Yeah. And and usually, if you have that kind of tumult in the uh, leadership, so that's race, full on regime change in that. That's case. that's regime change. Wow, what do you mean decapitate? Tell our listeners what you mean by that. I mean, what I mean is, you know, take him out from uh, the expected <laughs> position of uh, speakership. I don't mean actually take his head. No, of course. Although you, maybe we do need to be more specific uh, in these day and uh, in this day and age. Uh, Jeannie, Nancy Pelosi is watching this. Of course. And maybe she does have advice, but she needs to figure out her own life right now. Is she going to resign? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll be waiting to hear what we're hearing is they'll have their leadership elections late November. She's obviously at COP27, and we're just, I think, we, the Democrats, they are waiting to see, will she, you know, step down? Um, or is she just going to try to maintain? And I think we know who's in waiting. Primarily, another New Yorker um, on the other side is Hakeem Jeffries, who mm-hmm. many people feel that if she does step down, he is the person next in line for that that leadership post. But again, in deference to Nancy Pelosi, people are waiting. And I think you know, on Kevin McCarthy, another person to watch if it isn't, and and Rick's decapitation if it occurs, somebody to watch is Jim Jordan. Um, you know, there's not a lot of love lost there. And are Jim we Jordan, serious about that? That, though rick does jim jordan have a chance at, at that level of leadership not a snowball's chance in okay. gila ben arizona <laughs> oh, wow. uh look i mean that there are 10 jim jordans all of whom you know would have probably a broader base of support and uh, i would say you know remember one thing you don't have to be a member of congress to be the speaker of the house of representatives and so if there's a grand bargain how about Donald Trump as Speaker of the House? I mean, like, Kevin McCarthy works for him already, so why not make wow. it a little And Rick Davis said not a snowball's chance to Jim Jordan, but he's going with Donald Trump for Speaker? I can't, Rick wow. Davis. Okay, I love I'm this. just causing trouble. This you is are. good. This is the kind of trouble that we love. It did make me think of uh, yesterday. I was talking to a friend who I worked with in, in Washington, D.C., and we both remember this day. It was December 19th, 1998. And I'm sure you both remember it. And Rick, you probably have a story. But sometimes you come awfully close to being speaker. Sometimes you have become speaker. And it still doesn't work out. Remember a guy named Bob Livingston, anybody? Come with me back again. December of 1998. It was a different time in Washington. Thanks to Larry Flint, who put a story out there about his extramarital affair. I was prepared to lead our narrow majority as speaker. And I believe I had it in me to do a fine job. But I cannot do that job or be the kind of leader that I would like to be under current circumstances. So I must set the example that I hope President Clinton will follow. I will not stand for Speaker of the House on January 6th. 
couldn't believe it when it happened. And Bill Clinton did not resign, by the way. We'll continue the conversation coming up on the Fastest Hour in Politics as we turn to voter turnout and a conversation with Mindy Romero from the Center for Inclusive Democracy at USC. This is Bloomberg. Voter turnout is something we want to focus on and and go a little bit deeper to find out who turned out here because, well, obviously some expectations were challenged in these midterm elections. And while overall turnout was not as high as it was in 2018, it was actually quite a bit higher in certain battleground states, those that are keeping our attention. Heard earlier today from Professor Darren Shaw of the University of Texas. He spoke with David Weston on Balance of Power. Looks like the high water mark is Pennsylvania. They went from 51.7 in 2018 to 55%, so about a 3.3 point increase. Uh, other states that were gainers, uh, Nevada, and they haven't even counted all the ballots. It looks like New Hampshire went up about two points. Arizona went up about two points, and they're not done counting votes. New York had a tick up with the competitive election. Not much, but a you know an appreciable increase in terms of raw voters. All told, I'm counting about 10 states that look like they're going to have a, a turnout increase. From, again, 2018. Mindy Romero is founder and director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at USC and joins us now on Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks for being with us, Mindy. When you kind of pull out here, uh, just for starters, were your expectations blown out of the water for this campaign? Did pollsters tell us the wrong story going into it? Or do we have so many tight races there were so many races within the margin of error that you really can't blame them. You know, great question, right? So I think we need to first differentiate between turnout expectations, like yep. actual percent of those that are turning out and what groups turned out and why. And, you know, the whole battle for control of Congress right, and individual races. So I think certainly everyone's expectations, at least for the last month or two, were that you know, the Republicans were going to win big. There was going mm-hmm. to be a red wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would have a pretty large margin, you know, maybe winning by 15 or gaining 15 to 25 members in the House. Um, that clearly is not going to be a red, you know, not going to happen. We're not going to see a red wave. We will see yeah. Republicans likely gain control of the House. But it'll be a much slimmer margin, which will make a big difference for McCarthy and how he governs and holds his caucus together. Mm-hmm. Um there was this you know, rap, though, going into the election that young people, well, my God, they never get out of bed. Yeah. The, you know, they're in the, the, the turnout just never happens. We talk about it every two years. But we heard stories about four-hour-long lines on campus, uh, in-campus towns in yeah. Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, how, do you, how do you rationalize that? Yeah, and I was just going to say, I think, you know, I, I'm one of those researchers that I get, you know, call after call prior to any election uh, and am you know, hearing lots of really high expectations around the youth vote. And what typically happens is uh, those expectations are unrealistic. People will assume all kinds of numbers, even maybe maybe youth are going to do better than older voters in terms of turnout. And then after the election, we see this big letdown and all the, you know, story after story that really kind of blames young people for not participating, calling them apathetic. You know, in 2016, we even saw stories blaming young people for the election of Donald Trump. And it's really just a blame game. We kind of set young people up to fail. Hmm. I think the one thing that I've seen that's really standing out is media coverage has been pretty positive. And I think certainly aided by the president of the United States yesterday, right, calling out Gen Zers and thanking them for their participation. At the same time, though, I think that we need to also, you know, parse out what we're talking about when we talk about the strength of the youth vote. So the president's really talking about, for the most part, the fact that exit polls are showing that young people, those who voted, leaned heavily Democratic 
And that we would expect. Now mm-hmm. that, that, that those exact margins can change from election to election a little bit. But we knew young people were going to swing Democratic. Um, in close races, young people did, it looks like, turn, they turned out maybe higher than we would have expected or what would typically be their turnout numbers. But overall, if you look at the youth vote, it's still much lower. And we have numbers uh, coming out of Circle right now uh, at a Tufts University. They regularly put out um, their own uh, estimates of youth turnout. They're very respected in this field. And they're saying 27%. And the headline there is that that's the highest of, you know, eligible voters, youth voters. And they're saying that's the highest that we've seen in a very long time, which is true. So we should celebrate that. But it's still, you know, the difference between a lower turnout year, again, comparable elections. So, you know, yeah. We're talking midterms here. Mm-hmm. A lower turnout year and a higher turnout year for young people is typically just a few percentage points. So we can celebrate the 27%. And I think Democrats, when they talk about individual races, can celebrate young people, right, voting for them. But at the same time, we still need to you know, keep our eye on the prize here and understand that overall youth turnout is low. It's entrenched in our electoral system. That is much lower, 20, 30, 40 percentage points lower than older age groups, depending on the election. And young people need a lot more support, and overall our election system really disadvantages young people. Mm. So it's kind of like it's higher in these really competitive areas because that's where the candidates are actually reaching out to young people, fighting for their vote to some degree. And young people feel like their vote is being salient and and matters, and they're kind of part of that kind of whole fight for those races. But even then, they're not really getting as much contact as older voters and certainly the rest Mm -hmm. of the country. So is this really a story then this week, Mindy? And I'm just trying to get this in because we're short on time. Uh, Is is this more about young people not being uh, counted in in polling? Or did independents who showed up break enough to the Democratic side that it made a difference in these numbers with, you know, a, a similar sample of people simply voting Democratic? Yeah, let me be clear. I think young people were part of the Democratic win here, certainly, as well as independents, period. But they would have been a larger story yeah. of the election if they had higher turnout and they were actually engaged by all, uh, you know, all parties and candidates on all issues, period. Mm-hmm. Fascinating uh work that you do, Mindy, and I appreciate you coming to see us. Mindy Romero is founder and director of the USC Center for Inclusive Democracy in a conversation that we're going to turn over to the panel next, because there's talk of this reckoning for pollsters coming up here. Is it deserved? You, you don't answer that question without knowing who actually showed up here. Did they undercount young people or did independents simply break in a different direction than they expected in some very close races? As we sit here two days later, Without a real clue, at least not technically, of who's going to control either chamber here. Republicans are inching closer to getting this done in the House. The Senate up in the air with three races that have yet to be called. Rick and Jeannie will be back next, our signature panel on the Fastest Hour in Politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It seems like the pollsters are going to get a bad rap again. I'm just wondering if they deserve it. Hence the conversation that we just had with with Mindy here on Sound On. I want to hear from the panel on this, though. We we heard predictions of a red wave. We got what everyone's calling a red ripple or something. But there were so many close races within the margin that it's almost unfair. Maybe not. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are the experts. Bloomberg politics contributors. Jeannie, when you look inside the polls uh, that we were talking about, and we tend to go with the averages here, right? Last many weeks, we've been hitting real clear in 538. Some of them were dead on. Others were not. But there were so many races within the margin. Can you blame pollsters? You know, I don't think you can blame pollsters in this case. And, you know, and I'm uh, a few reasons why. And I'm so glad you connected it to turnout. Number one, polls are really notoriously bad about predicting future behavior. And that's what you're doing with pre-election polling. As your conversation just showed, turnout is what matters. That's the only real true poll. The second thing is, is that, as you mentioned, in tight races, we're like almost evenly divided in this country, 50-50. So you get a, you get a poll result. It sounds very decisive and you know 52 percent or 46 percent the reality is going to be a plus or minus four or five in most polls so you're swinging from 40 to 50 or 55 to 65 and that's really where many of these races ended up so I think that's part of it but I would say Nate Cohen from the New York Times made a really important point traditional polling that we are you know usually familiar with those pollsters didn't poll as much this time around we had a lot of partisan polling going on and they don't adhere to industry standards and so Republican pollsters were leaning right, and that is what I think swayed some of the thinking that in the last few weeks in particular, Republicans mm-hmm. may do better than expected. Rick Davis, you have run polls. You have been at the mercy of polls. I wonder when you look across the country and what we've learned here in the last couple of days, knowing that young people who don't have landlines, don't always have consistent addresses, and also don't like talking to pollsters are difficult to measure and and the MAGA crowd, as we've heard at any number of rallies, take pride in hanging up on pollsters. How in the world do you get a good sample? It's really hard to get a good sample. Uh, it used to be you call one twenty five people and you'd get one to do your entire thirty minute poll. Now it's like one in a hundred, uh, and that even you know degrades the sample even more. That's why you see. Uh, error rates uh, increasing to sometimes 8% in a poll. Why, why take the poll if you got an 8% <laughs> right. error rate? So um, I, I do think to, one of the things, though, in the point you just made about young voters, they're all predicated on a model, and the models are historic. So when young people do something or any other voter group that's different than what they've done in the past, it yeah. messes everybody's polling mm-hmm. up. And in this case, you know, other than 2018, there was a higher turnout for young people than ever before. And so, you know, blame it on the voter behavior. They're always screwing up the best pollsters. Uh, but this point Jeannie makes about uh, politicizing polling, yeah, you know, right. you can't even look at these real clear politics averages anymore because half the polls in them are sponsored by parties huh. and you can't rely on those. So uh, I think there's going to be a real uh, comeuppance at some point in the industry because, Legitimate pollsters are being overwhelmed by, you know, these sort of fake uh, party polling. Wow. Well, so then then, Jeannie, there is a reckoning coming, whether it's deserved or not. 
there is and there should be and that's where people like you know in the media and others have to be very very careful i too look at real queer politics averages we all do but it's very hard when you're looking at those big averages of polling to tease out which were conducted in a way that meets industry standards for transparency and data collection and some of them do and some of them don't and the ones that don't with close races can really sway what we're thinking and so that coupled with the fact that again a lot of our you know tried and true pollsters have decided they're not going to engage in public election polling because it's just not beneficial to them and so they have stepped back especially in the last few weeks and that has made the you know sort of goal of predicting really really difficult Mm -hmm. and you know on this issue of youth turnout I I want to underscore what your previous guest just said what Mindy said 27 percent is up but it is still less than three out of 10 18 to 29 year olds voting and that is you know we I too was cheering it today in class way to go guys and it's still less than than three out of ten we should do much much better we make voting in our country too hard so what is it Jeannie you spend every day with a classroom full is are they is it the cliche are they just lazy are they are they smoking weed and sleeping on mom's couch or do they not think it matters no it's none I, I don't believe it's it's any of the above you know not to be you know speak for the entire group but I think just in the case of college students they are in school today this is not a time when they can get out they are institutionalized populations okay. yeah. they have to work and go to school and so it's hard on a Tuesday in voting hours especially if you go to school as many students do away from home many of them don't have cars or transportation to get home right. so if you didn't think in my my state in my state of New York, if you didn't think to get an early ballot before October, I think it was 14th, you are out of luck. And when you're 1920, sometimes you're not thinking a month or two in advance to get right. a ballot. So we can make it much easier for the entire population to get out and vote. Well, you do wonder what the heck's going to happen, Rick, with two potentially two men over 80 running for the White House at the top of the ticket uh, in two years. Is that going to bring young people out? Uh, that'll drive them away. I mean, there's yeah. a reason why only three in ten vote because it's so detached from anything in their lives, and mm-hmm. and it should be a little bit detached. I mean, you know, it's it's it. Once you know, people start paying taxes and get in the workforce and That's becoming right, sure. part of the system, they they get more politically excited. So. Good, now good you know why the president's Jeannie's talking about debt forgiveness. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's right, Jeannie. Keep right. inspiring. As, I, as we spend time with Rick and Jeannie, who inspire us every day, I have to ask you about this new assault on the former president. Uh, apparently, the conservative news media has decided to turn the guns at Donald Trump. Listen to the lieutenant governor of Virginia. I don't know if you heard this today. You start looking around for examples here. You know, it's one thing for the former president to be... Uh, framed as Humpty Dumpty on the cover of the New York Post. But in this case, on Fox News Business Today, the lieutenant governor of Virginia, who was the national chair of black Americans to reelect the president in 2020, Winsome Sears, says she's done. You know, the voters have spoken and they have said that they want a different leader. And a true leader understands when they have become a liability a true leader understands that it's time to step off the stage. And the voters have given us that very clear message. On this same day, a Wall Street Journal editorial dubs Trump the Republican Party's biggest loser, which must be driving him wild at Mar-a-Lago. His, one of his favorite insults, of course. And then again, that New York Post cover. Don, who couldn't build a wall, had a great fall. Rick, is this advantage... Ron DeSantis? 
Well, my favorite new nickname is Trumpty Dumpty. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a pretty funny cover. Yeah, it's pretty funny. All of them are. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, this is the reaction, right? I mean, like, there are people now looking to scramble. I think this is the most vulnerable Donald Trump's been since January 6th, uh, uh, no, 2020. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, well, 2021. The, uh, the reality is that he does not have the kind of grip on the party today uh, that, uh, that he had going into this election, and, and for good reason, right? I mean, he's sitting on $100 million that he didn't spend on people he was endorsing. Uh, he, he gave the party people that couldn't win in a general uh, through his endorsement. Uh, and, and, and he's basically threatened the entire party that if you don't uh, become an election denier, you're not a Republican. So he's creating all these false uh, uh, expectations that can't be delivered on and then complains when it's not delivered. So I, I think there is a reckoning happening and, and, mm. and, and maybe he is able to pull it back like he did before. But uh, right now, there's a scramble for leadership, and and you know you, you, you don't have to look very far to find a lot of people. Governor Yunkin, you know, Governor yeah. DeSantis, you know, Governor Abbott. All these guys had great nights, and they're all looking for a national role. Boy, this is uh, this is interesting. Some, he's typically empowered by this type of thing, but to see the entire. Uh, Murdoch news empire, media empire, turn on Donald Trump. You wonder if this is an indicator, Jeannie. They're talking about, or at least he's alluding to, jumping into the race for president next week. And some are suggesting in the Republican Party that he take advantage. I don't mean to use this that term the wrong way, but uh, use the storm, use the hurricane as an excuse to not do it next week. What do you think happens? I don't know what everybody's talking about. Sure, DeSantis won Florida, but Trump got more votes than DeSantis, right? I that's what he was that. saying. Yeah, that's what he was million. saying. I don't know yeah. what everybody's talking about. My favorite New York Post, by the way, was DeFuture as opposed to DeSantis. <laughs> um, and, you know, John Pudhord's saying he's like a can of raid, the most profound voter repellent in American history. So he's wow. getting hit very hard. Yeah. Everybody is suggesting subtly or not so subtly that he doesn't announce before December 6th if he's going to and use, as you said, the hurricane is an excuse, but it's mm-hmm. Donald Trump. And what hit would it be to his ego? He didn't just subtly say he might consider doing this on Tuesday. He said he was going to do it, and now he would have to <laughs> not do it. So you can imagine that it's going to be a great beginning of the week. The tweet, uh, the truth, I guess called it. This is Donald Trump. Now that the election in Florida is over and everything went quite well, shouldn't it be said that in 2020 I got one million more votes in Florida than Ron D got this year? <laughs> Just asking, Rick Davis. Grievance, grievance, <laughs> grievance. I mean, please. Just is he reading the away. writing on the wall, though? I mean, he knows that this is for real. Should he postpone that announcement, Rick? Uh, look, I don't think he should ever make that announcement. Forget postpone <laughs> it. I mean, please, just decide That's your to go opinion, home. though. There's a and, tea time waiting for you, Donald yeah. Trump. If you were uh, looking out for Donald Trump, though. Is that the right call for if, him? If I were looking out for Donald Trump, I would cancel the meeting or have some reason to, to postpone it. But Interesting. Um, my guess is he feels vulnerable, and that's usually when he does the craziest yeah. things. Right. And the horse is out of the barn. That's the 15th. We'll <laughs> deal with that when the time comes. Jeannie, thank you. Rick Davis, of course, our signature panel. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Is this week over yet? We'll meet you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.